The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, we will be reading 1 John uh, 1, verses 5 through 9. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. A couple of you there. Good morning to you and those that don't say good morning as well. It's a privilege to be with you today. My name is Tripp. Um, I have planted a church and led a church in Culver City for the past, I don't know, while, 13 years or so. Um, and it's, uh, it's a privilege to be with you um, and to know Jared as your pastor. He's a really good dude and I uh, love him. And I know that you guys are blessed to have him as a pastor. And so it's great to, uh, to meet other Christians who are part of the same church even though we're part of different local churches, um, we're part of the same big church together. And I'm looking forward to eternity where we're going to get to spend telling each other the stories of how God has worked in our lives and in our city uh, over these past years. And so let me pray for us, and then I want to jump into what I think God has for us today. And so, Father, we thank you uh, that you love us. We thank you that you are gracious and kind. Father, we ask that you would pour your spirit out in this place and in, uh, in my life as I share and in the lives of those who hear your word. Father, pray that you would change us and that you would meet us here today. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, behind me, you can kind of see what we're going to talk about today. I want to spend some time talking about the ways the people of God have worshipped throughout the Bible and specifically worshipping through confession. Now, confession is probably not uh, one of the things you specifically think of when you think about worship. But it's actually a vital part of worship and one that I believe the church really needs to learn and to grow in, uh, both individually and corporately. Really, because worship is what God's people were created to do. We were made to worship God. We were made to reflect his glory to others so that they too would worship God who's really the only God in this world that's worthy of worship. And so the story that I want to look at today is actually found in Nehemiah chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to there. Um, But where we are in Nehemiah is you find the people of God worshiping through prayer and confession. Now at this time in the story of the history of Israel, they were living uh, under the rule of the Persian Empire. It was really a direct result of their rejection of God. God had promised them that he would protect them if they followed his ways. And he also promised if they rejected him, they would live in captivity. 
So as a result of them rejecting God, basically worshiping and following the other gods in, in, during that time, God keeps his promise. And Nebuchadnezzar comes uh, and he conquers them. And the walls of the city of Jerusalem are broken down. The great temple of Solomon is destroyed. And the people are carried off to Babylon. They're carried off to Babylon in slavery. Now Babylon was, is basically modern-day Iraq. So they're in, they're in Babylon now for 45 years. And they're in 45 years in slavery. And after 45 years of slavery in Babylon, the king of, of um, King Cyrus of Persia comes along and he conquers Babylon. So the king of Turkey comes and conquers Iraq. Things have been going on there for a long time. And, so, and then they're there for another 25 years in slavery. So about 70 years of captivity combined. After that, Cyrus, the king, allows the Jews to return to Jerusalem and to live and to rebuild the temple. Now, some of the people return and some don't. Some just remain in Babylon and stay there. But those that return, they start working on the temple. They start rebuilding the temple. And for various reasons, it takes them about 46 years to accomplish the task of rebuilding the temple. But despite the temple being rebuilt, it's really the shell of, the, of what it used to be. The splendor of the temple is really not there. And the people of God are living in this city that's in shambles with broken walls. And the temple is just kind of a, a shell of itself. And as we look at this, it's really this physical picture of their spiritual lives. Spiritually, the people of God are living in apathy. And so God sends a priest named Ezra to reintroduce the people of God to the word of God. And then 13 years later, Nehemiah comes with the authority of, of King Cyrus and rebuilds the city temple. And rebuilds, I'm sorry, the city walls. So what you find is if you read the whole book of Nehemiah, you'll find it's basically two, two halves. The first seven chapters talk about the rebuilding of the physical walls of the city and of the temple and everything. And the last six chapters really tell the story of the rebuilding of the people. So in chapter 8, just prior to our text today, we're going to see the people of God kind of, they gather at the end of the month of September, and they asked Ezra to read to them the law of Moses. And this marks the beginning of the rebuilding of the people. Because what we find is that the reading and hearing of God's word causes a proper response. It causes the response of worship. Why is that? Because the reading of God reminds us the reality of who God is. Who he is, what he's done, and how that then changes who we are and how we live according to that. And so the reading of God is this important piece of life. In Hebrews chapter 4... It says this, it says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What Hebrews is saying to us is that as we read scripture, what's actually happening is it's reading us. The Word of God is then really basically a reorienting tool that takes our misguided worship and realigns it with the reality of who God is. And so I want to encourage you to make sure that the reading of God's Word is a part of your daily life, a part of your daily routine. And so Ezra, Ezra here gets up and he, he reads the law. 
Now, if we think about the law, the law here refers to the the first five books of the Bible or the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so the people hear the, the, the law, basically they hear the history of God, they hear his promises, they hear his faithfulness, they hear him calling them to himself and making them a beloved people. But alongside that, they also hear this parallel story of a track record of unfaithfulness, of failures, of worship of other gods. And they look at their own hearts and their own stories and their own failures, and it deeply grieves them that they have rejected God. It deeply grieves them. And so when Ezra is done reading, they decide that they're going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles comes out of the book of Leviticus, and it's this feast that commemorates uh, them, the exodus from Egypt. And it usually took place after harvest time, and what would happen was God's people would would go out in the wilderness, and they would build these little tabernacles to live in for for an entire week. They build these little huts, these basically these small temporary shelters with with thatched roots and thatched roots, uh, roofs and, and palm fronds and, and other plants, and they would decorate them with all kinds of fruit that that grew in Palestine, and and they would go out in in the wilderness for a week. And actually, I, actually, I was. A couple weeks ago, my wife and I were teaching elementary school uh, class at our church, and we were going through the different feasts, and this was one of the feasts we talked about. And so we, we told the kids that they could take anything that they could find and make a tabernacle, and then we'd give them a snack in their tabernacle. And, and they got all excited, and we had some sheets and stuff, and they, they took the sheets, and they took tables, and they took chairs, and they built all these little structures, and, and our kids' ministries out in the parking lot, kind of like out over here. And I stood back, and as we're giving them snacks, I'm like, we just built another homeless camp. <laughs> I mean, that's, just kind of, that's kind of what it looks like, right? And so, like, these kids are out there, and they're, they're doing the Feast of Tabernacles, and they're like, we're giving them their snacks. So it wasn't exactly like that, but it was kind of like that, that the whole entire church family, the whole entire people of God would go camping for a week. And during that feast, they, they would live in these tents and they would recount the time of, how, of who God was and how he redeemed them and he brought them to the promised land. So instead of sitting in their nice homes all, with all they had, they went back to their roots to remember that they were once a people in slavery, once a people living in shacks in the wilderness. Yet God, in his mercy, rescued them and brought them into the promised land. Now, as I was thinking about that, I sensed that they're just like us. They had the same tendency to look at what they accomplished and take credit for it. Rather than, and, and often forgot about who God was and, and that he was the one that actually gives them everything in their lives. And so they have this feast to remember his grace. See, the reality is I think we, we're often just like them. We need to be reminded of, of our new identity, that because of Jesus' sacrifice, because of his resurrection, because of him calling us to himself, we're no longer in slavery. We're no longer wandering around without a home. You and I that know Jesus, we have been called out of the slavery market. We've been called into a new family as joint heirs with Jesus. 
And right now, he's preparing a place for you and for I to live in eternity in a perfect peace and perfect harmony where all of our needs are cared for. And not only that, we get to be in the presence of God, which is better than any of those other things. That's actually what heaven is about. It's about being in the presence of God. It's not about the golden streets and all the no sickness and all those other things. The good news of heaven is that you get to be in the presence of God 100% all the time. See, what good news that is that God is a gracious provider. I think it's one of the reasons why he gives us communion, that, that we would be reminded of the reality of what he's done for us and who we now get to become because of Jesus. So, but, so let me go back to our story here. So by the time we get back to, to chapter 9, what we find is that the people of God actually have a proper response from, from reading God's Word. And so I want to read chapter 9, verse 1. So on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israel descent had separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood in their place, and they confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. And they stood where they were and read from the book of the law their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and worshiping the Lord their God. So a couple of things to see here in these first three verses. First is this. There are, there are humble people, not just humble individuals. They're humble people, not just humble individuals. Notice in verse 1, it says the Israelites. In verse 2, it says they confessed. In verse 3, it says they stood. This is a plural thing. A people as a group are in humble repentance. I think this is really important because this is a people of God thing, not just something reserved for priests or for pastors or, or for good followers of God. This is a corporate thing that the people of God are a group of people who live in humble repentance. See, this humble repentance is evident through their actions. In verse 1, they're fasting together, basically saying, we consider ourselves poor before God and so troubled by our culture that food is not even important. They're wearing, they're wearing the same outfits, sackcloth, these burlap bags tied together, really to show the poverty of their heart. Even comfortable clothing is unimportant compared to the trouble their hearts are in and how they've interacted with God. And then we see them tossing dust on their heads. Now, this was, this was an act of, of mourning and humility, crying out and saying, we're so broken over the realization of our sins. So as a people, they're corporately saying, humbly, we're approaching God and we're mourning and we're confessing the way that his ways are better than our ways. And they're repenting of their misguided worship. I sense as we think about this scene, I think we need to ask the question, is this the way the culture around us views our response to God's grace? Are the followers of God known for humble repentance? Do we as a church image humble heart attitudes? Verse 2 goes on and says, They didn't only mourn over their sins, but they confessed it publicly. They declare out loud their failures and they confess their need of God. You know, I grew up in a church, and, and 
I'm not Catholic. You guys aren't either. Um, not, a, not that I know of. Um, but I think when we think about confession, we think about it as a private here thing. It's just something for me. But confession is a corporate practice. My guess is that we would rather confess in private than we would publicly. We don't want to be seen. We don't want others to see that we're needy or that we're sinful. This is just between God and me. But that's not true at all. You see, a sin always affects way more than just you. It always affects others, and it always affects the world around us. You see, the world is not the way that God designed it to be. And the reason for that, ultimately, is because of our sin. And the reason why confession is a corporate practice is that when we confess corporately as a, as a people, we demonstrate the magnitude of God's grace. You see, the more needs that are revealed, the greater amount of Jesus' grace is revealed. And so we, when we confess publicly, God is actually seen as the most glorious one. Because he's seen as not only the one who is able to forgive, but the one who does forgive. And he's seen as the one who is the only one who can truly bring restoration. So confession is a practice of worship that not only restores you as an individual, but it calls others around us to worship God and to align their hearts with his glorious grace. Take a look at what they're confessing here in verse 2. It says they confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors. Verse 3 says they spent a quarter of the day confessing. So this is not just some quick confession. This is a long time confessing all the details of their brokenness. They're confessing the sins done by them, sins done to them, and the sins done in the past by their ancestors that really have directly affected others and the culture around them. I think this is appropriate for us to think about as we think about even the cultural moment that we live in in this right now. That as a church, how we consider how we appropriately confess and address the brokenness and sins that the church has committed in the past and maybe is still committing right now. I'm sure you know this, but the church is full of a bunch of broken people. I'm completely broken. Your leaders are broken. Your pastors are broken. We are all broken. We are all just in need of God's grace as anyone else. We're just as much need as God's grace as the most egregious sinner you can think of. You and I are not exempt from this. And there is no doubt in my mind that there are many things that have shaped this country's past and the church's past that, are, that were wrong and still exist in some form or another. And we, as the people of God, get to be the first to confess not only our sins, but the sins of the past and say out loud, we mourn the brokenness and sins committed towards our fellow image bearers in the past. And we ask God to bring restoration in those areas. Because please know, no political figure, no new laws, no intellectual understanding can ever bring about change. Don't put your hope or your trust in any of those things. Sin is a heart problem, and only Jesus can change hearts. And so we get to confess and ask him to do 
the work that only he can do. See, understand this about confessing as well. When we confess sin, sin is not just missing the mark. It's not, well, I tried, but I was just a bit off. No, sin is outright rebellion against God. See, Adam and Eve didn't just miss the mark. They weren't off by just like one tree. It's like, oh, man, it was the tree on the right. Tack on it. No. They chose in their hearts to place something or someone else above God's word and rebelled against his good plan. And you and I do the same exact thing every day. Romans chapter 1 says it this way. They, that means humans, exchanged the truth of God about, about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creator, I mean the creature rather than the creator. You see, if you and I don't understand that behind every sin is a lie that we say in our hearts that this created thing is greater than God, then we will never truly learn to confess. We'll just minimize our sins and confess that we were just off a little or we made a mistake rather than getting to the depth of our rebellion. And we'll only confess our actions rather than our actual heart motives behind it. Please know sin is not missing the mark. It's outright rebellion against God. And so when we think about confession, true confession is actually admitting the grievous truth that we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie and place something or someone else as God in our life. And we believe that what they say or what this thing will fulfill me more than God will in this moment. I think sin is way worse than we often want to admit. But true confession actually gets to the bottom of it. It admits the root of the problem, your and my own rebellious hearts. It's coming to God with a posture of humble repentance and speaking the depths of our heart rebellion to him. This is what we see going on here in Nehemiah. If we go on to verse 3, we see that they spent a quarter of the day reading God's word, a quarter of the day confessing, and then a quarter of the day singing and praising God. I think this is really important because we see a progression here. And it's something that we we need to see and to learn from. It starts with the reading of God's word that exposes the reality of who he is and who we are, which leads to confession, which turns to worship and praise of the one who truly deserves worship. See, the reading of God leads to confession, which leads to worship. The Hebrew word here for worship actually means to, to prostrate oneself or to lay flat on the ground. It's the idea of understanding one's position before God and getting low. Basically throwing yourself at the feet of the almighty God, a God of mercy. And I, as I think about that idea of worship, I wonder how often do we assume that position? Not just laying there, but how often do we assume that in our hearts? prostrate before God. But see, they don't just stay down there. If you look on in verse 5, the leaders call them to move from this lowly place and to stand in the presence of God and declare that he is worthy of praise. Nehemiah 5 says this, And the Levites said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. 
Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above blessing and praise. See, the good news of worshiping God is he does not leave us in a broken state. He calls us, he redeems us, and he stands us back up on the feet, and he gives you and I the privilege of declaring his praises. What amazing good news that is. If you look at verse 6, he goes on the following day. What they do is once they get up, they tell God's story. They start with creation, and they recount his power and his grace, and they wind through the history and the story of God, and they tell of his graceness and exposing their own failures and their own needs and God's continual faithfulness and grace over and over and over and over again in the face of rejection. You see, as a church, that's what you and I get to do. We get to tell the story of our great God. Take a look at verse 6. This is what they say about God. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God. You chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and you named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, And you made a covenant to him to give his descendants the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Gershusites. And you have kept all your promises because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cries at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land. You knew how arrogant the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains till this day. You divided the seas before them, so they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the deep, like a stone into the mighty waters. Verse 12, by day you led them with a pillar of cloud, and by night with a pillar of fire, and you gave them light to where they were to take. Verse 13, you came down from Mount Sinai, and you spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and the commands that are good. You made known to them their holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven. In their thirst, you gave them water from a rock. You told them to go and take possession of the land you had sworn before them and give them their hand. But they are ancestors. They became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and they failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Verse 18 goes on and he talks about how I'm going to not read it just for time's sake, but how they brought them out of Egypt and how God had great compassion on them and how he continued to do these things for them even after they reject him. If you go on to verse 22 through 25, they tell about how God overcame kingdoms and how God gives them a promised land. And they sum it all up this way. It says, this reveals his great goodness. Again, in verse 26, the people respond with rebellion and blasphemy. In verse 27 through 31, the history of the prophet and the judges is this cycle of God's people continually rebelling 
and yet God giving them over, yet preserving them. Answering them in compassion when they cry out for deliverance, only for them to reject him again. There's this cycle over and over and again. Then in verse 32, the people of God cry out, and we say, they say, we know what kind of God you are. We know how powerful you are. We know how gracious you are. We know how faithful you are. You're a God that answers prayers, the prayers of the needy. The needy people that see their need for a change, to change their current situation and to pull them out of, out of slavery. You see, the reason why we confess and why we cry out from a place of humble repentance is because we know the character of God, that his grace is inexhaustible. So when we retell the story of God, we see how God responds to the cries of his people. And how does he respond? God always responds by sending a deliverer. Always. And ultimately, at the climax of the story, God doesn't just send a deliverer. He sends himself. And he brings restoration. And God brings restoration, and he delivers all humanity who are stuck in the spiritual slavery. And the good news is that God sends himself, God in the flesh, and God walks through every ounce of pain that you and I have ever experienced. The good news is that God has experienced our pain and he addressed the cause of our pain. And not just the cause, but the effects of our sin and our sorrow and our grief. And he brings wholeness to life. You see, Jesus is what makes God conforming you into his image possible. The good news is that the cross proves that God is not indifferent to our sin or to our pain, but rather he seeks to bring redemption through it. Jesus' sacrifice is what allows us to humbly acknowledge God's presence, to confess our need of him, and to get up off the floor and to sing his praises because we know that Jesus, because of Jesus, we are now joint heirs with Christ. That we're now holy and blameless, able to stand in the presence of God. What good news that is, that because of confession, our confession turns to worship. So as a church, tell the story of God. That's the name of your church. Tell the story of God and make confession a practice in your life with others around publicly so they would get to see how gracious God is. How gracious of a God we have that we get to serve. What good news that is, that God always responds to our rejection with redemption. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you willingly sent Jesus, that you made a way for us to walk despite our rejection of you. Father, that you made a way for our confession to actually turn to rejoicing. Father, may we be a people and a church that humbly walk in your ways so that the culture and the world around us would see that you are a great God, that you are a gracious God, that you are a God that, that redeems the souls of many. 
Father, we thank you for the ability to worship you. We thank you for the opportunity to do that this morning. Father, we thank you that you are a God of all endurance and encouragement, that you grant us to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Jesus Christ, that together with one voice we may glorify God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.